Well, good morning. Welcome this morning. Um, we are, we're going through a series. Actually, we're almost done with it now. We've got two weeks left called Exiles. Uh, and we're, we're, we've really been inspecting, looking at uh, the book of First Peter, which is at the back of the Bible, if you're tracking along with us today. And um, the, we've been looking at it from the perspective of what does it look like to be God's exiled people sent into the world to be his presence, to be his representatives, to live holy lives underneath the reign of King Jesus in everything that we do. And so we've been talking about it because uh, to be the church really doesn't mean that we just gather on Sunday morning. Uh, doesn't, the church isn't a building. The church isn't a, a one or two hour time slot on Sunday. A church is a people. And that, that church gathers uh, for the purpose of being equipped, celebrating, rejoicing what God has done, and then being sent into the world to be His presence. So um, this is Aaron. Aaron's up here with me today. Hello. And uh, one of the things I wanted to, to, uh, to do today is kind of we're, we're getting towards wrapping up the series is, is I, I wanted you to hear maybe a different perspective of, of what God's been up to in this series. And I know that God's been teaching you a lot of things. But we didn't have space for everyone to come up here. Um, so I asked Aaron if he would be able to share with us a little bit about what God's been teaching him and doing in his life, how he's going to, you know, he's, he, how God's kind of leading him to walk that out, and he was gracious enough to accept. So Aaron's been a, a good friend of mine for a now long I'm time. I'm regretting that, actually. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and he wore his official Jamaica uh, Irish shirt today. So It's the only green and clean shirt I had. So. <laughs> yeah, right. So if you can do a Irish Jamaican accent, that would be fantastic this morning. No, okay. no. <laughs> you don't even have to attempt it. It's okay. <laughs> um, so, so Aaron's been a good friend of mine for a long time, and so I appreciate that he uh, took this opportunity. So, what's what's God been teaching you? Well, a lot. First off, um, but I would say, as you know, Jay actually emailed me about this on Friday, and. Um, I give a lot of advance notice with these kinds of things. And half the time I was thinking, I'm just going to think of a reason why I can't do it. And then the other half I was thinking, <laughs> I'm kind of nervous about being in front of people, so I really want to put myself in a place where I can alleviate that fear. Um, but I do a lot of thinking, and actually that what God was teaching me is that um, the battle for idols to be dethroned in our life and the battle for our actions to be changed if we desire that is actually in our thinking. That um, that battle is won or lost in our thought life. Um, so I kind of pondered that a little bit more, and um, that was being revealed throughout this series. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to see change was at work, you know, I was praying to be a salt and a light. I was praying to be a peacemaker. And it's it's really interesting how... God has a sense of humor because the way I thought he was going to make that happen is completely different to the way that he actually made that happen. By praying to be a peacemaker, I found myself that day being thrust into conflict. Um, more, more than one occasion, and I would like to say that I handled it graciously, and you know, like St. Who was it? St. Peter? St. St. Patrick, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah like St. Patrick, <laughs> the, the Jamaican Irishman. But um, I didn't always, you know, and he was revealing that if I want to be a peacemaker, if I truly want to, you know, be salt and light at work, he's going to reveal things to me, and I can, by the power of the gospel, you know, 
accept mercy, you know, accept grace, and then offer that to others. You know, as I'm filled with that grace, I can then freely give that to others. Um, so that's one of the things that he's been teaching me, yeah. kind of how I've been walking it out. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, I have a whole bunch of other things, but we don't have to go into that. I was preparing, like, quotes, <laughs> like, by different people, scripture, but... <laughs> I kind of, when I came up here, I just wanted it to be off the heart. So I prayed, you know, God yeah. go before me up there, and yeah. he did. Cool. Yeah. Well, can I pray for you in, in yeah. your endeavor? I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about is the, the validity of everyday mission and that what it means to be a gospel-centered people sent into the world <clears throat> is not just that Sunday morning counts and Monday morning doesn't, but Monday morning counts every bit as much, and God wants to empower us and use us in that work. And so I... I appreciate what sh- uh, what Aaron has to, to share on that. But I also like to pray for him that God would use him in that context. And maybe he'd use you in a similar context where you work or where you live, where you go to school. Uh, so let's do that. Father, thank you for Aaron. Thanks for his willingness to um, share what uh, you've been teaching him, what you've been putting on his heart recently. Thank you that um, though he's not a perfect person, he's been learning to cry out to a perfect God and that you've been meeting him in the midst of conflict at work and um, whispering into his heart by your spirit that he has been reconciled, that he is loved, that he is cherished, that he has been made to be at peace with you through the cross and that uh, through that understanding and and some of the the war that you've been waging, even in his mind, um, to overcome these things, that he's been able to extend that same grace and love and peace to others. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd empower him for that work. Um, it, is, uh, it is gospel work, and so we affirm that as a church and, and lift him up uh, as his family to be able to do that well so that others would know just how great you are and how much you love them. Pray that same prayer over all of us, God, as we are in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, um, that you would Uh, remind us of the gospel, remind us of what we have in Christ, and that uh, you would empower us by your spirit to bring others to know you too. So thank you, God, for that, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. (laughs) I think we agreed on a fist bump, right? Yeah, we did. Okay, cool. Thank you. (laughs) Thank Aaron. Will you join me in thanking him? So God's at work. I hope you see that. Um, sometimes it's not always visible. Sometimes it's not always the result of an event or a program that's happening in the church. But mission is often like that. Um, God wants to use you and fill you as his people in the everyday. So I hope you hear that this morning. And I hope that it brings you hope that you could be that kind of person too. Um, so speaking of, of uh, kind of being used and filled and, and going through this series in exiles, We're almost at the end of this series. Um, Next week will be our last week, and uh, after that we've got Easter. So today we're going to be in 1 Peter 4, uh, 12 uh, 12 through 19. I think it's on page 841, or it's in that vicinity anyway. So if you want to follow along in the Bibles that you've got at the seats, you can do that. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, please feel free to take those. Those are free for you uh, so that you can study it and and, um, hear God through it. So... Um, but this morning, what Peter does actually is uh, he, he does a little bit of a turnaround to a topic that we've already covered. And you're probably thinking, oh good, I hope it was one of the better ones. Right? 
Uh, I, I don't want to break the bad news to you, but it's actually the topic of suffering again. And you're going, oh, great. Couldn't we pick something happier to come back to, right? Um, but he does. He comes back to this idea of suffering and trials and what they produce in our lives. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. And, and you know it's an important topic because it, it is a theme that runs all throughout the letter. Because what Peter is doing is he's trying to prepare a people so that they would give God glory and display who He is in everything that they do. And one of the things that God uses more often than any other thing in order to do just that are suffering and trials. Right? They're not the things that we choose to go through, but they're the things that God uses in a very specific and sometimes spectacular way in the lives of His people. So let's read what Peter has to say, and then we're going to talk about that for a bit. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. So this isn't the first time that Peter has addressed this idea of suffering and trials. And you notice it's a theme that he brings up a lot. He mentioned it in chapter 1, and we talked about that. Um, But he's preparing them to go through trials. And those trials are going to serve to make them a more faithful people to bring in God glory in everything that they do. And one of the things he talks about over and over again is that these trials are actually going to result in their joy. It's a very weird thing, right? You'd go through hard stuff and you'd get happier through it. You'd be more joyful on the other end of it or even in the midst of it. One of the things that he talks about over and over again. So if I were to say this on the front end, God has a purpose for suffering and trials. And so our disposition should be not to avoid them, but actually move towards them so that we would hear what it is that God has to say to us. Now, that's not often the disposition that we have, right, when we go through trials. But it's the one that he's talking about us going in and, and being a part of. So before we talk about what, what trials do kind of, and what God's purpose and plan is for them, let's talk about how we should act when they come, okay? So, so let me ask this, and we can dialogue over this for a second. What does Peter say should be our reaction when we suffer or when we experience trials? You may have to like read through the, the passage, maybe from top to bottom, but he says there, there are at least four things that he talks about there that should be our reaction when we, when we face these things. Yeah, we should rejoice. Weird, right? How many of you, when you lose your job, you go, man, I am blessed. I'm just going to... I'm going to rejoice in this for a little bit of time. I mean, you may do that because you've got some time off and you've been like really stressed out and you go, unemployment sounds really good right now, right? But we should, we should be rejoicing 
when we experience suffering. Why? Because if we're insulted, he says, for, for, because of Jesus, it's actually a mark that God's blessing is on us. And it's an indication that His Spirit is within us. We have access to a different power source to sustain us through that. And so isn't God good that He's given us a, a time in our life when we'll have to access that power source and know how powerful it is? Yeah, what else? We shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. What's that? We should welcome it. Yep. Great. Yeah, what else does he mention? We should be glad. Yeah. It it's ta- kind of taps into that, that same rejoicing, right? We should actually praise God when, when trials come because He's allowed us to bear the name of Christ. And so somehow we should be thinking in our minds, man, I'm glad because somehow God's going to get glory through this. Someone's going to get affected by this in a positive way. God's going to use this in the life of somebody else. And isn't He gracious to allow me to be the vessel by which He may affect and improve or or even bring someone from death to life in Jesus because of what they see me going through? That's actually His grace to us. What else does Peter mention? That we give glory to God. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same idea as giving Him praise. Yeah. Yeah, commit ourselves to God. And he says, do good, right? I mean, so often when we experience trials, one of the big questions on our mind is, who or what am I going to entrust myself to now? You know, we're going to talk a little bit about how that works out. Um, But sometimes we, we experience trials and we think, why should I continue to commit myself to him and do good if I'm going through this hardship, if he's led me to this point, right? Anybody ever asked that question? I mean, just be honest with me. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an identification with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you see that theme throughout the Bible a lot, actually, when it comes to Jesus' suffering, that those who follow him often suffer as Christ suffered so that we would actually have to identify ourselves with him. And, and the point of that isn't just so that we would have to suffer, we know that he suffered on our behalf. But can you imagine how glorious it will feel if you spent your entire life suffering for, for once you meet the one who died on your behalf to, to ransom you from your own sin and shame face to face, how glorious that day will be. Now, I remember I was talking to somebody who uh, he and his family had just been year after year of horrendous um, trials in terms of health. Um, suffering tremendously for a very long period of time. And, and he was confiding in me one day, and he said, I just I feel like I'm under a curse, you know, that, that life is just it's never going to improve, it's never going to get better, and I don't know what to do with it. And, and I felt like the Spirit was saying to me, 
to, to tell him, and we talked about it for a while, like, uh, imagine how wonderful it will be for you and your family to worship without that health issue going on, kind of being the, the weight uh, that, y- that you experience now throughout life. Imagine once you meet him face to face and that thing is removed. I mean, you're going to be worshiping next to somebody else that has no, ha- maybe had very little problems in that area in life, but you're, you're going to be overflowing with thankfulness and praise and giving glory to God because that, that weight has been lifted off of you. And, and, how, and how much do you, do you, are you able to tap into what Christ has done for you because you've suffered through life rather than having an easy life? I mean, that's actually God's grace if you, if you look at it that way. It's not often that we see it that way. It's not an easy thing to see it that way even. But, but I think it's true nonetheless. One of the things that he mentions is that we would, in terms of our reaction, we would suffer without shame. I mean, sometimes we suffer and we think, man, this is, this is not right. It, maybe it's because I did something wrong here. Instead of seeing it that we're suffering because God is doing something right in our lives. We don't see it that way often either, right? So, when trials and, and suffering do come, this is the way we should respond, right? What's often the way that we do respond? I mean, are those things true of us when we experience suffering and trials? Yeah. I'll put it this way. What's the first question that most of us ask when we experience suffering? Are you sure? I don't know if there's consensus on that. Anybody have something to add? No? Across the board, right? I mean, the first thing that you you ask, why me, of all the people in the world, why would you bring this to my doorstep, right? It's the first question we ask. You you know what that's a form of? It's actually a form of surprise, right? What is Peter saying? What's he begin the whole section with? Don't be surprised. In other words, expect it's going to come, right? But we're not people that expect it. And so, and in our unexpectation of it, we cry out and we say, God, why me? So why, why is it that you think that we're surprised? I mean, what are some of the reasons that we would be surprised when suffering comes? Yeah, sometimes we think that like knowing God means that we're insulated from those things. And it may come from a false mentality, a false theology actually, that somehow comfort equals blessing. You know, sometimes when you go through life and you feel really comfortable, you feel really blessed. And then when God kind of pulls the rug out from that comfort, you feel like you're not so blessed. The biblical picture, though, is the opposite, actually. How do we know that? Now, how comfortable was Jesus in his life? Right? No place to sleep. um, You know, nowhere to rest his head, he says. He has to live off of the contributions of, of other people. He grows up in a dirt-poor family in a backwoods town. He's under the oppression of one of the most formidable governments the world has ever seen, and they're taxing him like crazy, and they can't get out of line, otherwise they'll be beaten and crucified. And ultimately, when he starts to speak out about the kingdom of God, that's exactly what happens to him. Who's the most blessed person to ever walk the face of the earth? Jesus. So if comfort equals blessing, we've got a big problem, don't we? 
right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, sometimes we think that, and he does substitute ourselves for the worst trial that we could ever go through, which is actually go through the, the trial of God's wrath. He, he does substitute himself in that way. But those who follow after him should expect that we should experience some of the things that he experienced along the way too. Like if you, you know, you followed a, a, a poor guy that had trouble paying his taxes, you think he's going to give you the ability to just like, you know, have all the money that you ever dreamed of and never have any problems. It doesn't really equate, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep, everyone will suffer. Yep, absolutely. What, what are some of the other reasons we might be surprised? Yeah, somehow we think that we've, we've lived a good enough life that we've opted out of suffering, you know? Like, and and, and you, sometimes you wouldn't put it that way, but then when you suffer and you ask, why me? You'll start to say things back to God that reveal your heart because you'll say things like, haven't I been good to you, God? Ha- haven't I tithed? Haven't I gone to church? Haven't I tried to be a good person? All you're doing there is stacking up your own righteousness next to His and going, haven't I done enough not to earn this trial that you've brought my way? Yeah, that's a, it's a tremendous amount of pride, right? Because we're essentially saying to God, look, what you did in Christ wasn't enough. I needed to stack up my stuff to insulate me from trials. And then when you brought them, I'm going to get ticked off at you rather than looking at my own heart and seeing maybe if you're trying to do something in me. We've all done it, right? We've all been there. Yeah, sometimes we have a plan, too. How many of you are real planners? Come on, planners. (laughs) My wife's a real planner. She, you know, she has an enormous amount of vision for her life and the direction that it's going to take, right? Sometimes we can be people that construct such a worldview for ourselves and we see life as like this tunnel, and there's no you know, inevitable other path to our tunnel. It's just that constructed view of our reality. We're going to move through it no matter what, because life is going to look like this. And then God shifts us and puts us on another track, and we go, wait a second, you didn't give me my plan, God. And he's going, yeah, but I, I wanted to give you me. You want your plan to substitute me with, you know? Sometimes we can do that. I, I think, if, if we're being honest, I think the biggest reason that we're surprised when suffering comes is because we don't really understand the purpose of it. We don't really understand why God would bring it into our life. And so we, we reduce it to something else. And we think that it's because He dislikes us or because somehow He's punishing us for our behavior. And now, you, you may be suffering because of your own sin. Peter does bring that up, right? He said, look, if you're... If, if you went out and murdered somebody and you got thrown in jail and bad things happened to you in prison, don't blame God for it. Like, that's you, right? So, so sometimes we can suffer for our own bad choices and misbehavior and sin, but 
God actually does sometimes bring suffering, and He has a plan and a reason for it and he, he, that He causes His people to suffer. His own people, His beloved, His family. So we're going to talk about two ways that this happens, okay? And, and the first one is this. If you're going to take notes, you could write this down. God uses suffering as a trial to reveal what we trust in and burn away everything that cannot save us. All right, there's kind of two parts to that. He uses the trial to reveal what we trust in and to burn away everything that can't save us. And so trials show us what we really trust in, right? If you think of life as like be- being in an automobile going down the highway, what, what would you liken suffering to? What does it feel like? So, yeah, sometimes it feels like you're hitting a brick wall, right? And, and, and the car's no longer operable. You don't feel like you're going anywhere. Sometimes it just feels like you get off the road and you're stuck in the mud for a little while, right? And your wheels are spinning. And you're going, what is going on? I don't feel like I'm getting any traction to go anywhere. So oftentimes God is, what God is doing is He's slowing down life long enough so that we'd actually have to look at our own heart and see what's inside. That's why He brings this up in in verses four, um, chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial. Some of your versions might say fiery trial. That you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. That word fiery trial, there's kind of two parts to it. And the first one, fiery, means to refine something by fire. It, it comes from the term that's used when metal has gone through a furnace in order to purify it on the other side. And so... Uh, you probably never watched metal going through this process, but you can imagine it in your mind, right? We're, we're, not all the metal that comes out of the ground is like ready to go into jewelry, right? If you were to try to make it into something beautiful, it would fall apart because of all the impurities in it. They make it brittle, so it can't stand up to time. And so what the refiner does is he brings that metal to his furnace and he burns it in the fire. He melts it down. And all of the impurities that are in that metal, they come bubbling to the surface, right? Now, those of you who have heard this analogy before, how does the refiner know when the metal is ready to be taken out of the fire? Yeah, well, you can see his reflection in the metal, right? And so what is God doing with fiery trials? He, He is refining us in such a way for as long a period of time as necessary so that we would be faithful image bearers to who he is and what he's like. That's what God's doing. He's holding us in the flame long enough so that our impurities come to the surface and so He can skim them away so that we would be a more faithful, more glorious image of who Christ is. Now, the second word, trial, it comes from from the idea of to prove something. Um, So when something is cut open to kind of see what's inside of it, it's going through a trial. It's being proved. Everything that, that is inside of it is coming out so that you can see what it's really made of. Remember in, in high school, one of the things that they did when the, the anti-smoking thing was really like coming about, is like really starting to gain traction, that people shouldn't um, smoke cigarettes because of the health damages. They had somebody that came to our school with two lungs. How many of you have ever gone through? Do they still do this? They probably don't anymore. There's probably some kind of rule against it in schools now. But they come in with two lungs from cadavers. One was a, a lifelong smoker, and the other one wasn't. And what do they do with these things? They plop those things on the desk. They're really disgusting. And then they 
they, they cut them in half and they open them up to reveal what's inside. You look at one and go, man, that looks like a lung. And the other one, you're like, what is that? It looks like a prune, you know? Like, that's disgusting, right? And that's essentially what trials do. They cut us open so that we would see what's on the inside, so that we would be proven to ourselves in terms of what's actually going on in our hearts. So instead of a lung, it's a heart that God would kind of bring our heart to the surface, put it in front of our face and go, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Let's look at it. All angles, right? Sometimes we're in the fire long enough and we're like, okay, I've seen enough angles, <laughs> you know? I don't need to see it anymore. But that's what God is doing. When you think of a courtroom, that's kind of what's, what's going on. If we were in a courtroom right here and the defendant were sitting in, in the front row, everyone in the room looks the same, right? Everyone looks like a person. And you, sometimes if you watched a court proceeding happen, you'd go, that person doesn't look any different than the rest of the people in the room. But what's happening in a trial? All the stuff that's in their heart in terms of what they've done, maybe to another individual, is coming out through, uh, through, through testimony after testimony after testimony. All that evidence is coming to the surface. And if you watch it long enough, you start to separate that person from the rest of the people, and you go, that guy's a monster, right? That's what happens. God uses it to test us to see what's in our hearts. So together, these things give a pretty clear picture as to what trials and suffering do, don't they? So on the one hand, it purifies us, and at the same time, it reveals what we're made of. It reveals what we're trusting in. And so trials are the things that God uses actually to reveal to us our deepest allegiances and then to show us how they burn away in the trial. So here's the truth. You want to know why God does this is because you and I, we have no idea what our faith is really made of until it goes through the fire. We really don't. We think we do, but when it comes around to us, we we actually have no idea. And so God puts us through the fire to separate out all those other things that we put our trust in and to show them for what they really are. And then what we're supposed to do is to compare them to God and go, man, This is disgusting compared to him. It's like putting those two lungs on the table and you go, why would I ever do that to myself? That's the point of of the whole thing with the high school, if you didn't get that part. That's why they do it. Because you want to be the healthy lung. You want to get through the end of your life being able to breathe every breath, right? You don't want to be the second one whose life is cut short because of that thing. In the same way, God uses that so that we go, man, what am I doing? Why would I ever trust that? Isn't the alternative so much better? And that's why Peter says this in verse 13 and 14, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. The Spirit of glory and of God, it rests on you. In other words, be glad that you're, the trial that you're going through because it's showing you that you have something way better to put your trust in than those other things. And now you'll know it for sure, right? You have the Spirit. If you're His, you realize this. You have the Spirit of the living God implanted in you. The Spirit of the living God. The one that raised Jesus from the dead. Remember, we're about to celebrate that at Easter. He was in the tomb for three days, completely dead, getting rotting in the grave. On the third day, the Spirit said, wake up. And He did. 
and he rolled this tomb away, and he appeared to 500 people. That same power source is embedded in you. What are you going to trust in? That's the question that God's asking us. So, so don't miss this, right? Because sometimes we can think that we go through trials, and it's really a trial for us. Like it's really God, God saying, well, let's see how strong he is. You know? That is false thinking. God does not put you through a trial to see how strong you are. God puts you through a trial so that you would know how strong he is. That's why he does it. Last week, if you remember, uh, we talked about the will of God, right? That was the big question that we asked. What is the will of God? Can somebody answer that for me? I know it's been a week. You've been, you've been busy people, but what is the will of God? Remember we talked about that last week? I know you've been through a lot. You've had a lot of meetings and class assignments. and Yeah, that we would glorify him, right? Everyone else is like, man, I was going to say that. She took my answer. So let me ask this then this week. How do trials actually prove that this is God's will for us? How do they prove it? Because God is willing to put us through whatever is necessary for us to become people who glorify Him in everything we do. Everything. And so He will put us through anything necessary in order to do that. This was true of the Israelites. You, remember, you may remember their story when God saves them from Egypt and brings them through the Red Sea. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai and he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And here's the covenant. Here, here are my terms in terms of how this is going to play out. You need to follow me. No, don't put any other gods before me. Remember that I'm the one that saved you, right? You remember that, right? And of course they don't, and they build a calf. We talked about that before. Um, but he's saying, remember me, and here, here's what I need you to do to live as my people, to know that I'm God and that you're not. And, and then he brings them through a series of trials, and they get to the edge of the, of the Jordan River. They're, they're about to go into the Promised Land, and they balk at it, right? They, they look into the land, and they go, no, there's, these, there's people in there, and they're like eight feet tall, and... And they got swords and spears and we got like little sticks and rocks and they start trusting in themselves again, don't they? And God goes, okay, forget it. I'm going to use your children instead. They're going to be the ones that go in. You guys are not. You're going to die in the desert. That's the reason that they stay in the desert for 40 years. You may not remember that part of the story. It's not a 40-year walk from Egypt to Israel. It's really not. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's a good long walk, especially for us Americans that are out of shape. But it's not 40 years. Maybe for me it would be. I don't know. And then, so, so then he raises up the children in a new generation and he brings them to the banks of the Jordan River and they look into the land and they see it with eyes of faith rather than eyes of distrust to God. And then what does he say to them? One of the last things he says to them before they go in is, I want you to remember my purpose in doing this. He says this in Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 and 24. Be careful not to forget the covenant, the Lord your God, that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What is he saying there? Look, go into the land, 
but realize that anytime you trust in something else, I'm going to come like a fire and I'm going to burn that thing away because it will not stand the test. And they would have been, what would they have been thinking in their minds as he's saying this? Our parents were the ones that got consumed by the fire, right? They couldn't stand the test because their trust was in themselves and not in God's power and his providence. Therefore, God chose not to use them and he consumed them like a fire. We don't want to be that people. We want to be people that learn to trust in God for everything, to know that he's powerful enough. Do you see what he's doing there? And of course, they fail and they stumble and God comes like a fire and he shows them his power over and over and over again all the way to the cross, right? In the same way, Peter picks up on this theme and he says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name for, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. There's that fire language again. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, if you bear a name that will stand the test of the fire, don't be ashamed of it. Praise God that He's given you that name to trust in. Because God is going to bring you through a kind of judgment. It's going to show you just how trustworthy His name really is. And it's far better than the alternative, which is a judgment that will come for those who haven't trusted in the Gospel, for those who don't know God and the good news and who, who haven't given their, their lives over to His Spirit to be the one to save them, but they've trusted in their own work, their own power, their own lives, their own goodness, and they're going to stand on the banks of the river and they're going to be consumed. That's what he's saying here. But not so with you. So don't be ashamed. God's fire will come and it will consume those things that don't bend to His will. And there are different kinds of fires that we can go through, right? There there are different ways that sometimes God uses this. And you may have experienced some of these. But God may come in the form of a a moral trial to test us in terms of a decision. Are we going to make a decision in one way that, that, that shows that we really trust in ourselves, or are we going to make a decision in another way that shows that we trust in Him? Some of you may have gone through this kind of trial in terms of your finances, and maybe things were going well for you for a time, and then you know we've, we're, coming, we're starting to come on the other side of this downturn of the economy, but I'm sure it's affected many of us. And when it did, it kind of brought us a time when maybe you were saying to yourself, I'm used to having all this stuff and all this extra income or, or at least the ability to keep my head above water. And now it seems like this isn't happening anymore and I'm having to cut, cut, cut all these different areas of my life just to put food on the table. And God is, you see what God is asking you in that. He's saying, are you going to continue to trust in me to be the one that puts food on your table or are you going to trust your credit card as your God? Are you going to go further into debt? Are you going to trust in your things to provide for you? Some of us, it may be in the area of relationships. I mean, there are some single people here. I I realize that. And, and, And here's the situation. If you haven't realized this in New Jersey, there aren't all kinds of people, they're not coming out of the woodwork, people who love Jesus. Maybe you've been around high school or college and you're going... It just doesn't seem like there's many people here that like love Jesus and follow Him and want to serve Him and, and, and w- would claim His name. 
here's the question. The Bible is pretty clear on the fact that we should marry people who have the same faith as us, is it not? It says don't be unequally yoked because it's going to go bad for you if you do. So what's the, what's the fiery trial that's coming to separate out your allegiances? Are you going to trust Him with that way? Or are you going to say, no, I'm just going to compromise on it. I'm just going to, I'm going to find somebody that, that likes me for who I am and maybe over time, maybe slowly over time, if I just nag them long enough to come to church with me, it'll start to happen and they'll start to love Jesus and they'll change and they'll be that kind of equally yoked spouse, right? Are you going to trust Him? Or are you going to go your way? What was Peter's trial? Do you remember his? We talked about it last week, right? He thought that he had faith that he could stand the fiery trial when it came time to either deny Jesus or not. And he, in front of everybody, said, my faith is strong enough, Jesus. Look at me. I'm going to be the one that, that, that goes with you through the trial. Even it means I have to give my own life. And then as soon as the little schoolgirl with a lunchbox says, hey, don't you know Jesus? He's like, I'm out. You know? Why? Because his faith was in his own ability to have faith. It was not in Jesus' ability to rescue him through every situation. Others of you may be going through a trial in terms of how you respond to something that's already happened in your life. And sometimes that can be a tremendous loss, right? And so what are you going to do and who are you going to trust in when you're in the midst of the furnace? Some of you may have lost a job and you're at the point where you're going, am I going to trust him through this time or am I going to walk away? See, God is revealing to your heart where your allegiances were and maybe you put more trust in your job than you should have. And when you looked at the corner of your paycheck, you thought, yep, that's my provider, that's my sovereign, that's the one that gives me everything I need. It's written right there in the corner. It's got an address and everything. And then God takes away that paycheck and He said, who's going to provide for you now? Some of us, it might be in, in terms of the loss of a loved one. And you pictured a life happening in, in one direction where the two of you or your family or whatever is, is united and going in the same direction and you had this mindset that this was going to be your plan and it hasn't turned out the way that you thought. And maybe God is using this time to help you understand that even your closest loved ones cannot be your ultimate source of hope because eventually everyone dies and everyone will disappoint you. I hope you realize that, right? I know death is a hard thing and we should grieve. It's a grievous thing. But there's a time for grieving and then there's a time to move forward. And, it, and here's the thing, death should never leave us hopeless. If it does, then it means that our hope was probably in something that God had already predicted would fail us. He wants more for you than that. See, in all these things, all these circumstances, they require you to make an absolute choice. What's His will? That we would choose Him every time. That all of parts of our lives would glorify Him in everything that we do. And so the question is, will you choose the path of least resistance or will you choose the way that requires you to trust in God? Which, by the way, will lead you to have to trust in God. Because when you trust in God, it will lead you to have to trust in God. 
But you don't fully know if you trust him until a trial comes to reveal all the other stuff that's going on in your heart. And sometimes God in his mercy, he will lead us directly towards the fire so that we can see it with our own eyes and so he can burn away everything that does not result in greater glory and trust of him. So what's the second thing? Peter ends by saying this. Well, before I do that, let me say, the second is this, that God uses trials to produce in us a kind of commitment to him that he's worthy to receive. Like you realize that God is the most powerful, sovereign, glorious, good, great. I mean, think of all the adjectives that you could possibly think of. Wise, gracious, wonderful being that's ever existed. And he's available to you in all of his power, all of his might, all of his ability to bring people through trials. It's available to his people because we're his kids. He's worthy of trust. And sometimes he uses a trial to go, I want to bring you through it so that you realize that your commitment is in the right thing. And that's why Peter says this, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. How many, let me ask this, how many of you enjoyed being disciplined as kids? How many of you just love it? Like, spank me and send me to my room. Yes, that's what I want. No hands went up. Interesting. How many of you were glad that your parents disciplined you when you were kids? You know, I hated being disciplined when I was a kid. I hated it. I tried to do everything I could to avoid it. And particularly, like, so mom was usually the one to discipline until it got really bad, and then dad would come in, and you're like, oh, no, you know? Like, mom was bad enough. She, you know, she would discipline with words. When dad was coming, look out. Like, hide, you know. And I hated that. I didn't enjoy it at all. But you know what I learned? Now being a parent, discipline is necessary. And how else was I going to learn that hitting my sister was not okay? You know? How else was I going to learn that that disrespecting my parents and questioning their authority was not something that would lead me to be a good, healthy adult? How else was I going to learn that? And sometimes, like I say, like we as parents, we want to be our kid's best friend, and so we don't discipline them. You are setting your child up for a world of hurt. You really are. I'm so glad for the discipline of my parents. And here's one of the things that I realize now as an adult and being a parent myself is that I've come to know and realize that my parents didn't discipline me more often than not because they were angry at me. They disciplined me because they loved me and they wanted good for me. Now, sometimes it was motivated out of anger because it's like, how in the world could you do that, you know? But behind it, they wanted me to, to be freed from it so that I wouldn't live my life as an adult continuing to do and to become and to to participate in those same habits. I remember one time when my mom thought that I may have um, smoked a cigarette. My mom was a lifelong smoker, and she she quit um, probably six or seven years ago. Um, And and 
you know, person who's, she's actively smoking, but then she finds out that I may have gotten a hold of one of her cigarettes and, and had it outside, she went belligerent on me. Why? She didn't want me to repeat the same thing, right? See, I, I've grown to trust the discipline of my parents because I know that they had my best interest in mind. And maybe you didn't have that experience as a child, but I'm drawing on this so that you'll see and you'll, you'll, you'll realize that God actually disciplines because He loves. And so think about a time in your life when you went through trials. Maybe you're in one now. And think just of all the stuff that it's producing in you and all this, the impurities and everything that are bubbling to the surface. All your impatience and all your anger and all your frustration all your inability to trust, all those things just bubbling up to the surface. And now realize that God in His mercy has led you to discover those things in your heart, not because He's angry with you or because He wants to see you suffer, but because He's a faithful Creator who longs for you to trust in Him because He's a good Father and He disciplines you to produce something in you worth having. Do you see it? That's why... In, in another place in Hebrews 12, it says, the Lord disciplines those He loves. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. What a glorious picture, right? That we would actually be trained up by the suffering that we experience, that it would produce in us a harvest of righteousness. God so longs for you to experience that as His children. He loves you and He wants to see you whole. And so the conclusion that you should come to, that you need to come to, is is not, God must hate me for putting me through all this. But instead, God must so love me to have brought me through everything He did because look what it's producing in me. Am I not more in love with Him? Am I not more trusting of Him? Do I not rely on Him to a greater degree and find my goodness in Him? Am I not more patient with other people and gracious with them when they hurt me? All those things. God cannot produce those things in you apart from setting you through trials so that you would find out what's in your heart so that it be burned away for Him. One of the things I really look forward to as I get older. I realize I'm not an old guy by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the things that I look forward to with the perspective of time is to be able to look back on seasons of my life when I thought that He wasn't being loving to me. When I, I, when I went through those times and I thought God was absent from those occasions, and I long to have the perspective of time to look back at those things and go, wasn't God loving me so well through that time because I know what it's produced in me. I'm a different person on the other end of it. Thank you, God, that you did not spare me from that trial so that you could produce in me what I am today. I so long for that. One of the occasions that I do have the perspective of time to look back on now that it's been a few years and it's been brought to my attention now that I'm going to be a father again is when my son was born. And many of you remember that occasion because I was standing right here as my wife went into labor. 
Um, but he was born six weeks early, and he spent a few, the, the first few weeks of his life in the NICU, and he was having trouble eating, and thank God his lungs were healthy, so he was able to breathe. But, man, it was a scary time. And I remember feel, feeling, feeling filled with such fear, and, and Mandy was too. And I remember us being in the midst of that furnace, and we got about halfway through the time that he was in there, and he had just broken the five-and-a-half-pound barrier. And it was like, I remember coming home from Man- from the hospital with Mandy in the car ride because we were there. We, we tried to be there for as many feedings as possible. Even though we weren't participating with him, we wanted to hold him while he was being fed so that he'd know that he was nurtured and loved. And I remember driving home that one night. It was like 11.45 at night because we had to be there for an 11 o'clock feeding. And Mandy was like, I want out. I want out. Like, I want him to come home. I'm sick and tired of this. Can we just bring him home? Can this just be over? I I want it to end. I remember praying through that car ride and getting home and just all the tears that were being shed in our house during that time because it's not fun to have a baby and then come home to an empty house. It really isn't. I remember feeling and experiencing being in the midst of a fire. And I remember coming across this verse. It talks about God disciplines those he loves, and he's producing something in us. And I just said to Mandy, look, God is up to something. I just know it. Like, he's going to do something through us, and and I don't know how it's going to turn out. It may turn out not very good from our perspective, but but God is going to work in such a way that he produces something in us and that we're going to be more committed and more infatuated with him and and, and give our lives over to him more, and he's going to glorify himself through this, and he has. I want that same experience for you. And so I'd ask you, don't, when you're in the midst of a fire, don't automatically turn to something else as if it's going to save you because it won't. And so often we just say, look, I just need to turn to a book or I need to get a better counselor or I need to change my diet or renew my gym membership or what. Whatever it might be, I need to do all these things first. Peter says, I want you to entrust yourself to the Lord, to your faithful Creator. He's still faithful to you. He created you and He knows what you need. In other words, deposit yourself into Him like a bank. Put yourself in His care. Cry out to Him and realize He's the only one that's trustworthy. He's the only one that can get you through. He's the only one that can save you. He's wiser than you are. He's stronger than you are. He's more loving. He's more gracious. He's more capable. And here's here's how you know that you know. Okay? How do you know that you know that this is going on? You'll know that this is happening when you're in the midst of a furnace And instead of looking for the escape hatch, instead of wandering around in the dark, grasping for the door, saying, get me the heck out of here, you'll release it and you'll lay down in the midst of the fire and you'll say to God, use this and produce in me the kind of harvest that you want to see in my life. I need you to get me out of here Will you do this. 
And so as we pray, I want to call you to a couple of things. Because we're going to take a moment, we're going to come to the table, and we're going to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ, and we're going to sing out to Him. And so God may have been putting something in your mind in terms of either a trial or what that trial is producing as I've been talking through this whole thing. And maybe it's like a, a, a hand in your face. You can't even see me because it's so present and visible. I want you to take that thing and I want you to bring it before Him and exchange it for His healing and His peace. And I want you to entrust yourself to Him. And those of us that have, those of us that have experienced the kind of peace and harvest that comes through trusting Him through trials, I want to call you to rejoice. We're about to sing together as a church to the Creator, the faithful Creator of the universe who made you and saved you through His Son. Don't hold back your rejoice from Him. Right? We should be people that love to give God glory and praise for what He's done. So let's do that together. Rejoice that He's a good God. He's a good Father. He loves you. And He's producing in you something that you, you won't even realize how glorious it, it is until you stand face to face with Him. And, and God shows you all the ways that He's been faithful to you to produce in you things that glorify Him and are for your good. We get to rejoice in that today, though, because He's doing that work among us right now. So let's come to Him, shall we? Father, that You're a good and faithful God, and sometimes when we go through things, it's painful. We don't want to be in the midst of it. But I thank you, God, that you are a faithful creator that loves us, who made us, who knows what we need and doesn't always give us what we want, but in discipline, you produce in us the kind of things that you want to see because we're your family. And so help us, God, in our unbelief. Some of us believe in things that cannot produce salvation. And so as we're presented with this today, I pray that in faith we'd be able to put those things down and trust in you. Thank you that the the indication that that is true above all other things is that you sent your son to give his life in our place, to, to go through the ultimate fire on our behalf. So we know, we stand here before you today, that you're not angry, you're not vengeful against us, but you are committed to consuming everything within us that does not glorify you. And so, God, I pray on behalf of our people that you'd have your work in us, you'd have your way with our hearts. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.